Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Lipton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Asa for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now on to the episode. Okay, we are live. Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your co-host, John Micton, and uh, Dan Taylor is out today. Uh, he's just actually gone to Bahrain, and he's doing some work there, and he'll be uh, with us at the next one. I'm really uh, very excited to have Dr. Helen Kelly. Dr. Helen Kelly, Dan, and I actually did a podcast about six, nine months ago, and we had a terrible tech issue with sound and everything, and we kind of nixed it, but uh, we really felt it was time to reconnect and have this uh, privilege to sit with uh, Helen and talk to Helen about a lot of the work she's doing. She has uh, a website called The Positive Principle and does some fantastic research and work and workshops around the international school community around the globe. And I'm going to stop talking because I think it's so important that she kind of uh, tells us a bit about her background and who she is. And we're going to kind of look together at the space of well-being, burnout, and kind of the impact of the pandemic on educators, because I think none of us can deny that everybody has been impacted at some level in very different ways, in different contexts, and have reacted differently, and some people maybe not yet and will, and kind of unpack those important themes that I think I know our audience has all experienced. So, Helen, thank you so much for coming back. It's, it's such a privilege to have you here again. And uh, if you can just, you know, kind of tell our audience a bit more about yourself. Okay, John, thanks for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure. Um, and I just wanted to thank you. You've been one of my greatest advocates over the last couple of years and always really encouraging with the, you know, with the work that I've been doing and uh, telling me how helpful it's been in, in your school, um, you know, which urges me on. So thanks so much for that. Um, you know, it took me a while to realize that my interest in this field actually began before I was an educator. So I had a first career before I became a teacher. Um, I was a lawyer in the UK and I worked in the field of health and safety at work. So I worked for um, trade union members who suffered industrial accidents or industrial diseases. And I think that's where my interest in workplace well-being began. Um, and then I moved on to a second career, became a teacher, and uh, almost all of my career in education has been in international schools, uh, going back 23 years now, and 15 years of that was as a principal um, in schools, first of all in Bangkok, and then in Berlin, and then in Hong Kong. Um, and during that time, uh, back in 2013, I began my doctoral studies at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And initially I was going to do something focused upon teaching and learning. And then suddenly I got interested in this um, school leader wellbeing area. And so my thesis was actually focused upon school leader wellbeing. And, you know, there was hardly anything in that arena then. There's, there's lots now. There's lots that's gone on in the last five years. Um, and so it was quite groundbreaking. And um, I started my blog. I got a lot of response to that. And it was really good to be able to support school leaders around the world to help them to understand that they were not the only ones who were feeling the way that they were feeling. And then kind of strange, um, went to Hong Kong. Um, and after three years of working in Hong Kong, I actually experienced an occupational burnout myself. Um, and at that time, I was also diagnosed with a heart condition. And so I retired. Um, I was 55 um, in 2020. And for the last two years, I've been doing a lot of research and writing um, and connecting with school leaders and educators, speaking at conferences, delivering webinars and so on. Um, you know, just trying to support, not just in the international school field, um, but in um, schools in all sectors, all over the world. Um, and it's been uh, very interesting and rewarding because obviously, as you mentioned, this has been a special time when there's been an enormous need for this focus upon well-being. Fantastic. And so when you uh, you talked about an occupational burnout, and we do hear of that, and especially in many schools, 
international schools and local schools too, and public schools, is the demands on a school leader have become so wide and varied and nuanced. And sometimes it's a 24-7. And, you know, the, the, the reality of dealing with adults and children and emotion and human beings can be quite complex, but it can also be very demanding. Through the pandemic, I know that you did a, a fantastic uh, article and bit of research on, you know, teacher well-being during the pandemic and improving school well-being through positive school culture. And I know there's also been uh, a report that you had on uh, trouble, the troubling impact on international school teacher well-being and the resilience of leaders. Do you think this was something that was already happening, but kind of COVID just amplified it or do you think covid just brought something new to the table no uh, the first one you know i'm just uh, finishing up my first book at the moment which will hopefully be published by routledge at the end of the year and that's about school leader well-being and i was very careful there is a covid chapter but in the rest of the book I've drawn on data from all over the world, you know, particularly countries like the UK, the States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, where there's a real depth of longitudinal data going back as far as 10 years in Australia. And I was very, very careful to, um, to make those early chapters pre-COVID because I want readers to understand that this isn't something that just came about as a result of the pandemic. This is something that was already happening. And, you know, for example, there's some um, great annual surveys that, uh, that are done, uh, particularly in Australia, they've done groundbreaking work there, um, going back to 2011, where they're able to show that burnout for um, school principals is about 1.7 times the amount of what you would see in the uh, normal working population. Oh my so, God. yeah, absolutely. Um, that's and so, and that's going back to 2011. So, this isn't something that just happened as a result of the pandemic. Um, this is something that's happened as a result of the pressures um, that school leaders are experiencing in their day to day work. And the pandemic has just amped that up you know, to, to, new, to new levels. And what we know now from lots of research that's been done, um, the, the National Association for Head Teachers in the UK did some research last year to show a staggering two thirds of, of head teachers are considering leaving the profession. And, uh, you know, because of, the, um, because of the impact on their well-being, and that has been severely exacerbated uh, by, the, by the pandemic. So Helen, which is really interesting, and again, we'll make sure we have uh, people don't forget that this book is coming down the line, and of course you can find out more on Helen's website. But what's interesting is how you really emphasize that we need to be mindful that there was this narrative occurring before. Why maybe was it not as out there or maybe as apparent, and you know, COVID kind of brought that up, but what was it? Were people talking about it or were they just kind of an underlying current and people knew, but there wasn't real much attention to it? No, I don't think people were really talking about it at all. And it's interesting that you mentioned about the emotional demands of the role, because when I did my thesis back in, um, delivered my thesis in 2017, but began writing it in 2013, no one, even in the research field, was really talking about the emotional demands of the role. Um, it was all about workload, you know, research going back 30 years about workload, but not about the emotional demands. Um, and I also think, so, so firstly, people don't, don't, haven't until recently understood what the emotional demands of the work are. It's interesting, I'll just tell you this little kind of anecdote. Um, I went to see a GP in uh, Hong Kong and told her what I did and, uh, you know, I was seeing her because of my stress. And she said, oh, I don't think of school principals as being stressed. It must be so lovely to work with healthy children all the time, not like my job. And I said, well, to be honest with you, I don't really work with children. I have a team of 100 adults and that's where my daily work is. And so I think even people in other professions don't really understand um, what our work involves and how demanding it is, not just on a, a kind of physical workload level, but on an emotional level. And so COVID has really brought that to light. I think the other factor here is that until recently, 
don't think that people really think that school leaders matter. I don't think that people have acknowledged just how important they are to the, the, the functioning of society. Um, and the first part of my book is really setting out the data, the research to show why it is that we should care about this. Because actually, you know, we are nation builders, school leaders, um, you know, through um, exceptional education, um, our countries become more economically competitive. We also develop the social and emotional skills in young people that they need to be successful adults. And our job is extremely important. And I think there has been a huge lack of acknowledgement of that. And so that's another reason why this hasn't been discussed um, until, the, until the pandemic brought it into focus. Yeah. It's so interesting that you mentioned that, that you know, when you think in a lot of narratives in the media or in conversations, it's always about teachers and teacher workload. And, and so often the idea of administration and principals and directors, I agree, is often not taken into consideration. And both of us uh, have been school administrators and definitely understand the complexity of managing 100 or whatever it might be, smaller schools, 20, but whatever it might be. Tell me a bit about this idea of emotion. So, you know, I love the anecdote where you go to your doctor and, and she says, oh, it's so nice to work with healthy children. And then you're thinking you have a hundred faculty that are knocking on your door and, you know, emails and whatever it might be. What is it about the emotion? What, what are the demands emotionally that maybe people don't understand about a school leader? And at some level, also teachers, because they're working with 20, 30 kids. Or if you're a, in a upper school, you might be have multi hundred kids in different classes. What is that emotion demand that maybe people are not mindful of or even aware of? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I drew attention to in my original research um, for my doctorate um, is that schools are essentially emotional arenas. They're essentially emotional places. You know, they're, pe they're, they're places where people come to learn, but also teachers are emotional individuals because they're responsible for the care of young people whether they be three-year-olds or 18-year-olds and then we've also got that parent factor involved where everyday parents are handing over their most precious possession to this place and these individuals and so we've already got this kind of emotional um, context happening um, which I think is really underexplored and then there's a lot of research going back to around about 2009 most of it coming from the UK that talks about the school principal or the head teacher being the emotional conduit through which all the emotions in school flow or the emotional gatekeeper and so you've got this role where you're taking on board the emotions of everyone else and that's precipitating emotions in yourself. And so every day you're managing the emotions of all of these people, adults and children, and also managing your own emotions. There's also another um, thing called emotional labor, which is much overused phrase these days, but actually it goes back to research um, with flight attendants where they're working in actually a very dangerous and high pressure environment, but constantly having to pretend that everything's fine. <laughs> and w yeah, we do that in school. I'm all very the time. happy they're doing that. I can tell you when I'm on the Absolutely. Plane, I love seeing smile. <laughs> but you know, we also know that people that work in um, caring professions also are involved in a lot of emotional labor. And what we know from the research there is that constantly pushing down your emotions or constantly faking positive emotions actually leads to what's called emotional exhaustion, which is a, um, a factor in precipitating burnout. So, you know, there are a few things going on there. What, what we also know, and my own research showed this, but it's interesting to see now that the research on burnout in educators confirms this, that actually it's not the relationship with students that actually brings those emotional demands. It's primarily emotions, um, the demands of relationships and interactions with staff and with parents. And those two factors are more closely associated with school principal burnout than any other factors. 
that's so fascinating because you you know when people that are not educators and they come and visit a classroom and they see your 20 kindergartners or your 20 upper school students they always say oh that must be so emotional but i think you know as an educator and correct me if i'm wrong i i always get re-energized when i'm in the classroom there is this exchange and there's this this you know being more elementary focused there's this this, this positivity and everything's possible What's interesting is that now you're saying from the research that actually it's those adult relationships and those parent relationships that really are demanding. So how does that play out in the sense that, you know, people don't understand that and they think maybe it's the kids? Why have we kind of gone down this idea that the kids are the demands on the emotion and not the adults? Is there any evidence or any thoughts that you have on that? Well, I think that most people have no idea what a school principal does and they have no idea what our day looks like and the, you know, the, the, the interactions that we have with adults. I remember someone, I think it was someone who came on work experience or something at one of the schools I worked at and she came into my office to work, to shadow me for the day and she said, what is it that you do? <laughs> I don't think they know what it is that we do and so most people really don't understand how we're on a daily basis supporting the emotions of teachers and the emotions of parents and and I think this is really important in the context of our conversation there's evidence to show including from my own research that that's more so in international schools because of all the factors at play you know, in the community is much more important to us. We're away from our normal support networks. Um, we're a community constantly in transition. Um, and transition has been shown, you know, to be um, very emotionally demanding. Um, we have um, cross-cultural um, factors at play that also lead to a lot of misunderstanding and can cause conflict. And so actually, um, it's particularly draining for international school leaders. We're playing a role. I spoke to someone recently um, who was actually the spouse of um, a well-known international school principal. And um, she told me, you know, no one really knows what these people do. And I think if most people understood the level of responsibility that they're taking for their community and the bizarre things that they're expected to do in the middle of the night or in the holidays when someone's in trouble and doesn't have anyone else to turn to, they would just be horrified. And the, the, the stress and pressure that that piles upon them, no <laughs> one can, you know, no one can really understand that. Um, and I think it is quite a unique set of factors um, that we find ourselves placed in uh, when we're responsible for an international school community. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting, the anecdote that you bring up is this idea, you know, a lot of uh, colleagues and principals and directors and educators are in sometimes geopolitically very, and I mean, imagine, you know, the teachers that are in the Ukraine right now at the international schools, as just an example. And so, and then at the end of the day, you might have your local embassy, but People are going to come to your principal first. They anticipate the principal is going to have the answers. He or she is going to have the connections. And it really ends up on, on their plate. And I think that's so true. And it's so powerful what you're saying is that I think we don't understand the complexity. And the other thing is we often don't have our, our close family. Often the medical services or even counseling and therapy are not available. So, you know, you suddenly become a, a, a multitude of roles. And I think that really makes it so complex. I know uh, when the pandemic came about, you did a couple reports on well-being in the COVID pandemic. And I, I was wondering if maybe you could just spend a few minutes talking to us about that, because then I want to come back to this idea of burnout. But I think those reports, which I really enjoyed reading, and I know a lot of colleagues around the world did too, what were some of the, you know, first of all, why did you decide to do this? And what were some learnings? And what do you think are now things that we need to be mindful of? Because this is not yet over in the sense of, you know, emotions are long term. 
Yeah. Um, well, the first one that I did was actually about school leader well-being during the pandemic. And that was based on a survey that I conducted in October 2020. And then the report came out a couple of months later. And that wasn't um, just for international schools, actually. It was, as I said earlier, all sectors. Um, and I think 45 countries took part in that. Um, and there were only over 700 respondents. And it's actually quite hard to get people to respond to a Google survey that you post on LinkedIn or something like that. <laughs> so the fact that over 700 people responded within a week was, you know, very telling of there being a need for this. Um, and it, it was really quite fascinating to see just how desperate people were. You know, I, I think that the factors that, um, that even though the se sectors were different and the demands are different in different contexts around the world, the themes that came through were pretty universal. You know, themes were um, the, the constant change and uncertainty, um, poor and untimely advice and guidance from government. Um, you know, th that was kind of one of the themes that came out really strongly that, that people were finding difficult to, to manage. Um, and then also balancing the competing needs of stakeholders, I think was a huge one. And I'm sure this will ring true with you, you know, where parents don't understand just how difficult it is for teachers to teach in an online environment and how yeah. challenging it is to try to give um, individual feedback to students within the time frame of a normal working week. Um, and just how desperate teachers were becoming, um, you know, because they were so exhausted even when you know once they got over the issue of managing this change into an online environment that for many of them was unfamiliar and, and changing the pedagogy and getting used to these new online tools even once they'd got over that there's never enough time um, yet parents were still paying the school fees and still expecting their child to have a, you know a top-notch service yeah. And parents themselves were often working from home and managing, you know, their own work demands and trying to help support their child. Um, and then we've got the, the, the competing needs of the Board of Governors as well. So the board, the board of Governors are concerned about the parents' needs and putting pressure on leaders and putting pressure on leaders to put pressure on teachers and squeeze a bit more out and getting to a point where that's just, you know, not you're just asking teachers to do things that are not possible. And of course the person, the piggy in the middle is the school leader who's just getting <laughs> squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. Um, you know, lots of people very desperate. Um, also some really heartfelt, emotive language in some of the qualitative data of people talking about, I'm just, I was just a teacher, you know, I just, I came into this because I like being with children. And now all of a sudden I'm expected to be a health and safety expert. And I'm terrified of what happens if I get this wrong and someone dies, it, I, I won't sleep for the rest of my life, wow. you know? So really That's quite powerful. desperate. Um, yeah. yeah, really very, very powerful. Um, and just giving those people a voice. And then to come on to the teacher uh, report, that was actually much more intentional and a response to, quite interestingly, um, I published a few articles in um, the International Educator and a couple of other magazines um, around this topic of the school leader well-being during the pandemic and just how desperate it was for school leaders. And I had a particular individual who kept cropping up in the comments, in the below the line comments, um, and also cropped up on a couple of social media posts, really quite offended that I was taking the side of the school leader when really oh. it was the international school teachers who yeah. no one was giving them a voice and how dare I? And this person was very angry. Wow. Um, and I know. And so I thought, well, first of all, it's my field of expertise. So that's, you know, I shouldn't have to feel that I should make excuses for why I'm doing this, but I did a bit. And then I realized that, that while there were plenty of countries like the UK, Australia, that were um, putting out surveys and, and, you know, publishing reports around teacher well-being, that no one was giving international school teachers a voice. And so oh, I decided that I would do that. And so in January 2021, um, I did put together a survey specifically for international school teachers to give them a voice. 
and um, and again it was very well um, there was a high level of participation and you know many of the themes that came out in the school leader report were the same but obviously you're going to see it from a different perspective where yeah. lots of teachers are blaming their school leaders for the pressure that they're under also what came out common you know in common for both reports is not feeling supported so school leaders were not feeling supported by their boards and by their parents and teachers were not feeling supported by their leaders and by their communities um, no one was really feeling that they'd been prepared or trained for this in any way um, and then another thing that really came out of the teacher report you know I'd refined my practice by then so I asked different questions was just the level of mental health problems that were emerging by January 2021 um, and the, the, the isolation, um, the, the appalling isolation that teachers working in international schools. And again, some very powerful stuff from people who literally just moved to a new country and a new school and had never met any of their colleagues because they'd been sitting in their apartment for six months doing online learning. That's amazing. And I, yeah, th those stories are so intense. I actually have a colleague that moved to a school and <clears throat> to this day has not yet seen her kids face to face. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's yeah. yeah. And yeah. And just and not having been home. So, you know, I my last place was Hong Kong, as you know, and, you know, we're all aware of what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment. It's heartbreaking to think that my colleagues are still going through this. Yeah. And some of my close colleagues in Hong Kong, this will be the third summer that they haven't been able to go home and connect with their families and friends. And no. you know what, what I learned from that report in January 2021 is that people were really starting to feel that. And you know, just one last point is there was a significant amount, and I think it was about 40% of teachers said that they didn't feel safe um, and supported in the country where they were living. Wow. Yeah, that's, so, that's... you know, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy, we're going right <laughs> yeah. down to the bottom there, aren't we? They're not feeling secure and safe. Yeah. They're not yeah. feeling that the government in the country where they live in has their best interests at heart and that, and that it's, you know, they're going to be looked after on the most basic level, you know, medical care and protection from, the, you know, that may have been, if this was pre-vaccination, remember, yeah. January yeah. 2021. So still a lot of fear. Yeah, you know, back yeah. then. And to think that people are working all day and then have that underlying current of stress and that anxiety, it just, you know, and that really requires keep replenishment of your own energy and positiveness. And that can just be so very exhausting. I love Absolutely. the way uh, it's interesting that there were a lot of similarities. I think, you know, often we think the experience of a principal or a school leader and a teacher are so different, but I think it's just, it's, it's something that is really interesting. And I think also reassuring that there is a common story that we uh, experience as educators, be it a leader or a teacher in the context of uh, being abroad. One of the things that you talked about at the beginning is this idea of burnout. And I think, you know, that word is, I think, always quite complex and complicated. People, there's often a very negative association with burnout. There's this idea of failure and, you know, you can't cut it. And, and that's a very, I think, an old kind of adage, but I think it still permeates. And, you know, when you talk to somebody, oh, they had burnout, it's kind of like a it's not clear what that means. And I'm wondering if maybe you could kind of highlight a better understanding because so often I think that people share very vulnerably that they've gone through a burnout and I'm not sure everybody gives the empathy or understands what that looks like and what that means. And of course, it's very different for all kinds of different people. But I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what is burnout and why do we kind of have a misconception? Why are we not more empathetic and supportive of our colleagues and educators around the world? And we're talking about the school context here. Absolutely. You know, first of all, I think that um, I've started to look at things in the burnout context in the within the construct of burnout more in the last year while I've been researching my book. Because I think many of us find this idea of well-being to be quite nebulous and, and quite hard to pin down, whereas burnout is actually a very well-researched and well-defined 
field and there is a um, an extensive body of research now about educator burnout um, and so I find it a much more concrete construct within which to discuss this issue you know and you know I also experienced a burnout myself in the summer of 2019 so I've got experience to draw on you know the first thing I would say is that burnout is a very overused word and you know it's very trendy now to say oh I'm I don't mean with, with teachers, I mean generally in the world, you know, oh, I'm burnt out, I'm burnt out. But actually, occupational burnout um, is a real thing. And it was recognised by the World Health Organisation as an occupational condition in May 2019, which is actually exactly the same month that I experienced my <laughs> occupational burnout. Um, and it is not a medical diagnosis, but it is an occupational condition that has three elements. And in order for it to be a burnout, all three elements need to be present. So there needs to be exhaustion. There needs to be disengagement or detachment or cynicism towards the workplace. So you stop, you start feeling disengaged. You stop believing in what you're doing as being worthwhile. Um, and you start detaching yourself from your colleagues and from the workplace. And because we're exhausted and we're disengaging, we then become ineffective, professionally ineffective. And for a burnout to have occurred, all three of those things need to happen. But I think what's important to know, and the reason why I think this is a, an interesting and useful construct to look at well-being, is that it isn't just a question of burnt out or not burnt out. The researchers have developed um, a continuum of burnout that starts at one end, the good end, with engaged, and that's where we all start off as educators. When we begin our career, we start off as engaged. You know, we have low levels of exhaustion, high levels of engagement and high levels of effectiveness. And then over time, we move through a continuum. And there are until we get to burnout, there are three other, three other parts which we can experience one or two of those. But as soon as we get to three, that's when we've burnt out. So those are the three things in the middle of the continuum are overextended, that's when we feel exhausted, disengaged and ineffective. Um, and so most all educators are going to be somewhere along this continuum. They're either going to be engaged or they're going to be overextended, disengaged or ineffective or two of those three, or they're going to be burnt out when they've got all three. So it's actually something that we can Put ourselves on and you can move backwards and forwards along this continuum it's it doesn't all go in one direction you know what we also know is that burnout is actually caused by an imbalance or a mismatch between our needs as an individual and what the workplace provides for us in six areas and those areas are workload community control values rewards and fairness. And so if we start to feel that in one of those or more of those areas, there's a mismatch <coughs> on what we need and what the workplace is giving us, that can start to contribute to burnout. And what the research into educator burnout tells us is that there are three of those areas that are actually more closely associated with educator burnout um than with burnout uh, than the other three areas and it won't surprise you to hear that workload is is one of them um the next one is community um and in international schools in particular you know that's a massive factor so feeling that you're you have a sense of belonging feeling that you're getting the level of support that you need and that is different for everyone. That's why it's important that it's an imbalance between what you as an individual need and what the workplace provides. And then the third one is control. And that's all about autonomy. And I'm sure that you can see how those three have become very, very crystallized and amped up during the pandemic. The Absolutely. workload has gone off the charts, yeah? yeah. And, and yeah. all of my research has shown that people are working harder now than they were before. Yes. Community, we don't have that sense of community anymore because we're all working in isolation and yeah. we don't feel that we're getting the support that we need because sometimes the people who are supposed to be supporting us haven't got anything left to give themselves. Yes, exactly. And then thirdly, yeah, thirdly, that control thing. 
you know, it's not under anyone's control, is it? So we don't have control over this. And this is scary for us. And this, you know, this, these three things are, you know, I'm not saying that values, rewards and fairness aren't a factor, but these three areas, if we want to focus in on what schools can do, these three areas are the areas that are um, primary contributors to educator burnout, pre-pandemic, but also during the pandemic. And what's so interesting is the way you highlight those three and say these are things that schools can work on. These are very tangible things that you can work on. Workload has to do with time and balance. And that's something that really schools can decide, you know, how much how big is your strategic plan? How many things do you put on the plate? And then this idea of community is very important. And there are a lot of concrete things that you can do. Okay, you can throw parties and everything, but it has to be much more, I would say, broad focus. <clears throat> and it the does. idea of control is, you know, uh, with the New Year's, I read The Economist, and, and they have called the next dec decade the predictable unpredictability. And <laughs> what we need to really maybe understand is, what does it mean for a school community and a school leader when you have unpredictability and how can you bring some certainty in such uncertain times? What are some little things that you maybe can do as a school, as a community, so people do have that sense of predictability, even though they might be surrounded with the uncertainty? So I think that's so powerful those three things. Now, Helen, I know you also work with schools and you do workshops and, and you, you know, you support many different schools. Have you in the work that you've done recently, are those areas that you're focusing on and what kind of been some of the reactions, some of the feedback that you're getting as you highlight this? Because I think the way you highlight it, it's just so concrete. You know, I think you're right. The idea of values and, and the rewards, those are more complex because rewards often has to do with economics. Do you have enough bums on seats, uh, et, et cetera. But I, uh, talk to us a bit about when you approach educators and leaders in your workshop, and I assume you're highlighting this, what kind of reactions are you getting? How are people connecting to this? Okay. I mean, first of all, John, I think it's really important to just come back briefly to something you mentioned at the beginning of the talk about burnout, about um, it, uh, people feeling it's about failure and it being stigmatized. Yes, thank so you. I, thank you. Yeah. Yes. So I think the first thing I want to tell schools, and I think an important message to come across in this podcast, is that actually all of the research shows that while there are characteristics, individual characteristics and attitudes, that may contribute to an individual's burnout, that work, that burnout is primarily a workplace, context-based, situational-based thing. It is not a thing of the individual. It is about That's the workplace. That's really important to, I think, and thank you for highlighting that, is because so often I think we label the person as weak or vulnerable. We and I, th and, and I think- and, and that's where we need to, and thank you, that we need to say, no, it's not you, it's the workplace, it's your situation. It's the workplace. And there's there's 25 years worth of research, not into the, not all in the school um, you know, arena, but it, it, to, show that, to show this, to establish this, it's important. And you know, in the first couple of chapters of my book, I start in the preface as you do by telling my own story, but then I, you know, I seek to really emphasize this. It is a workplace and situational matter. It is not the matter of, of the individual. And so in my workshops and in my consultancy work with schools, first of all, I, it's important to acknowledge this, that schools need to take responsibility for ensuring that their staff and their leaders do not burn out and what I try to do is to establish reasons why and this comes back to our earlier conversation about well do school leaders matter does it matter who cares about this why is it important actually there's some really solid research that's just come from um, York University in the UK in 2020 uh, that looks at teacher burnout and it it establishes direct links firstly between teacher burnout and teacher turnover um, you know, people leave in the profession, uh, but also, I think, much more important in many ways, links between teacher burnout, burnout and um, student outcomes. And oh. teacher burnout is very much connected to, um, to the mental health of students and also to academic outcomes. 
That's really um, interesting. And so that's the bottom line, isn't it? That's yeah. the whole purpose of the school. So when I'm working with a school, that's the first message I want to give them. This matters. This is important. You yeah. know, um, it, these are the reasons to do it because it's getting to the core purpose of what you do as a school. Um, and then you can get to the finances of constantly having teachers and school leaders turning over and how much does that cost? And what about most people? What we know is that young teachers, if they get burnt out very quickly in the first three years, which does happen, they leave the profession, but veteran teachers don't. So what impact is that having on a school when veteran teachers are continuing to come in day after day when they're actually burnt out? You know, so yeah. there's a lot of reasons why this is matters. You know, so I try to emphasize that first. And then I think what I also do is to help people to understand there are three different ways in which this can be approached. It's what they call in the field primary interventions, secondary interventions and tertiary interven interventions. Tertiary interventions are what the individual does when it's all gone wrong. So like what happened to me, I fell off a cliff and then you have to you know, stop working, you seek counselling, you seek medical support, that's tertiary. Secondary interventions are what the individual can do. So that's all your stress management techniques, rest and mindfulness and all of that stuff. But actually, none of that has anywhere near as big an impact as your primary interventions. And your primary interventions are what are done in the workplace. And these have by far the biggest impact. So these you know and I do them myself but these workshops where we tell teachers how to look after themselves better they have a place but it's not getting to the heart of the matter what we need to do is take a strategic approach so we need to find out what the what the issues are in our individual school so if the biggest issues are issues of workload and community and control what does that look like in our school and the only way we can do that is by is by having a really good quality survey um, but what's important there is this has to be a collaborative approach. If you're doing a survey to staff and then you're doing the results and presenting them and then telling them what you're going to do, it's not going to work. It needs to be a collaborative approach where everyone's involved in de developing the survey, implementing the survey, analysing the data and then drawing up strategic goals to figure out how can we address this and every school is different and the needs of every individual are different and so it has to be very broad based so i think that's, that's the first thing that's just yeah, a very gone. powerful message in the sense that there has to be a collective intrinsic connection to that and that idea of collaboration is that everybody has that control that ownership that you were talking about before so i just think and i think sometimes Absolutely. we miss the mark on that Absolutely. And, you know, I've had teachers in webinars, I've had school leaders in webinars say, oh, but I organised for them all to go out and it was going to be lovely and nobody came. And I said, well, did you ask them if they wanted to? No. Well, did you ask them whether there was something else that they needed more? No. Yeah. Do I need to say yeah. anything else? Yeah. You know, so you can't do a survey to staff. There will be suspicion in some schools where there's low levels of trust that this might be used against them. So you need to discuss issues of confidentiality, anonymity. You need to think about what kinds of questions you're going to be asking. You need to have, you know, some kind of broad based committee that's going to be developing this, maybe working with a specialist. Um, you know, it needs to be collaborative. Um, and then I think the other th kind of big thing that comes from this, you know, from, from that strategic plan, from that strategic approach, you'll develop a plan that addresses workload, addresses support, addresses training, addresses issues of autonomy. But I think probably the single most important thing that's the foundation of all of this is positive school culture. And if you don't have a positive school culture, all of this is going to be harder. And you can't yeah. wave a magic wand and have a, and make a positive school culture. It's something that you build up over a period of years, but you have to start somewhere. Exactly. And I think that the people, you know, it's something that takes time. I, I always equate it to a good wine, you know, you, you need to let it to breathe. It needs to grow and age. And I think that sometimes we are maybe impatient 
and we yes. try to have quick fixes. You know, I think your analogy of somebody inviting everybody out, you know, the, the white wine and cheese at the end of a faculty meeting at five after everybody, you know, it, it's nice, but at, at the end of the day, that's not really going to make a difference. And I think, no, so I mean, it important. helps to build community. Yeah. <clears throat> and it helps people to feel cared for, but on its own, it isn't enough. And, you know, you asked me, what was the response? Well, you know, I get different responses. I, I, people like you who get it and then I get people who just want the quick fix I was I delivered a full day workshop yesterday and um, some of the takeaways at the end of the day really made my heart sink because people were going to take the material and then use it in a way that it wasn't intended for because they oh. wanted a box they wanted to tick a box or they thought that they could fix it you know quickly put a band-aid on and you can't these are fundamental situational workplace you know, factors that need to be dealt with at a deep level through a collaborative process over a number of years. And you will get there eventually, but you, there, there aren't quick fixes to do this properly. Yeah. And that's what's sad is that, you know, the anecdote of somebody taking your material and finding the quick fixes is, you know, are we giving ourselves the courage and permission to understand this is a slow, difficult, complex process? Do you think that schools were just not aware of this? Do you think this is also something maybe in, you know, universities that are training teachers or different principal training programs, you know, where international school educators are going to regional conferences. Is there really a space and place where we need collectively as a group of educators in international schools and local schools to really pay more attention and really understand how to unpack all the complexities and layers? Absolutely. You know, I think that if this can come through in principal training and, uh, you know, uh, um, professional development, it's 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 fundamental to everything because, you know, you've got to remember, John, I've got what now uh, eight years in this field and some of these ideas have only started to come to me in the last year. And so it's not fair to expect other people who are busy working as school principals to really understand this. And so it needs to be built in. Um, and it's interesting, I've said that Australia are, are you know, leaders in this field and um, they have now started developing um, excellent um, two and a half day workshops, um, elements of principal training um, that really look at the emotional demands of the role and really understand burnout and the contextual factors around that. Whereas the best that most people are going to do is, you know, go to EARCOS or some other similar thing and see somebody like me talking for an hour and that's it, you know, and, you know, it's complex. And each one of these things I've talked about today, I could talk about for five hours. You know, well, I could so... talk to you for five hours. So, <laughs> but you know, it, think... so it, it needs time and it needs to be built up. I think that, you know, if principals could go on at least a one day workshop every year that just yeah. focuses upon this to, to build their knowledge over yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah, think then I think I... that that would help. What I find so interesting is also you equated the idea of teacher and principal well-being with student uh, achievement. And, you know, the thing is, is this has a domino effect and it might be invisible. It might not be obviously right in front of you, but there is a long term negative effect on a school community if this does not get addressed. And I think the pandemic Absolutely. kind of just amplified it and said, hold on here, this, and as you have shared so well, is that this is something that's been happening before. It's just the pandemic, kind of the spotlight came on. And, you yeah. know, one of the concerns I have- I mean, we, we've I known have, for 30 years. Yeah. Sorry, My concern is that- We've known uh, for 30 years. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, please, Helen. I was gonna, uh, we've known for 30 years, the impact um, of this on uh, student outcomes so it's not new the impact yeah. of this for teacher burnout on student outcomes is the research is quite new but there's no excuse really for us not knowing this about school leaders you know what we know loads of research going back 30 40 years is that um 
school leaders who are under an incredible amount of stress and burnout are more likely to leave their school. And we also know that they're not as effective in their role. Your job performance is impacted. We've known that for a long time. But what we also know is that when a school leader leaves their school, there's a knock-on effect for everyone in the school. Yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely. you know, and schools that have leaders, schools where the context is such that leaders turn over a lot because the job's too hard and no one wants to do it and they burn out and they have a procession of leaders leave every time those leaders leave, it has an impact on that goes right back to student learning and even test results. There's data going back to the 1980s that shows that. So wow. we've known this for a long time. It's just not very public. It's not very public. And one of the wonderings I have or concerns is now that this has been amplified and spotlighted because of pandemic, when the pandemic is over, whatever that means, are we just going to bury this under the carpet again? You know, what, what, how can we as school communities understand this is a living thing and it's not only because of the pandemic. This is something that needs to be addressed long term, short term and midterm. And that's, you know, I'm just, you know, in work that you're doing and books like yourself and the workshops definitely are so important. But I'm wondering how much school communities have taken this on board and said, we need to make this a priority. Yeah, I do. I do think that we've. Um... I, you know, I do hope that we've opened up something that isn't going to go away. Um, and, you know, I don't like putting responsibility for things on school leaders because they're already under too much pressure. Um, but I think school leaders, um, you know, it's about innovative school leaders understanding the true importance of well-being for their community and keeping it on the agenda. But more than anything else, and this is the toughest nut to crack, it's about boards. It's about boards yes. of governors and boards of directors. Was... And, and they are hard. They're hard to crack, you know? Yeah. And that's so important. And for uh, uh, for-profit schools that have a central office and, and have more of a, you know, corporate uh, structure. But you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about well-being. But what is the role of the board? And maybe that's where leadership teams need to engage the board with is understanding the impact. And, and what's so powerful that you've said, there's a lot of research. This is not like something that you just have discovered overnight. So there is very tangible, longitudinal, well, uh, you know, resourced research that we can lean on. And maybe that's where uh, organizations like ECIS, uh, you know, all, uh, or ERCOS and those organizations, regional organizations can maybe have a role in, in supporting and educating boards that they are aware of that. Helen, yeah. I'm just mindful of our time and I just want to make sure the audience realizes in the show notes, you'll see a lot of the articles that Helen has written and some of her research work. So you can always pop over there and you can also get to her LinkedIn, her Twitter and the Facebook, the Positive Principle and her website. So those are things. And then Helen is going to have a book coming out. So I'll keep an eye out there. And maybe after the book comes up, we can touch base again, Helen. It would be nice Absolutely. to reconvene. Yeah. Helen, thank you pleasure. so much. A real pleasure you, and such great learning. And uh, again, if you are not following Dr. Helen Kelly, it's at DRH Kelly on Twitter and definitely pop over to LinkedIn and you can get a lot of resources also on the show notes. Helen, thank you again for your time and wisdom. It's such a Thanks, pleasure. John.